here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 107 FM in Kruenstadt. All right, as usual, we have our COVID-19 helpline and we're going to keep it the same and I'm going to ask you to start dialing in with all questions related to COVID-19. You can do that on 0891-104-207. You can also send in those voice notes on 0614-104-407. My guest this afternoon is Professor Sinead Delaney Muretre, who's a director, research at WITS Health, Reproductive Health and HIV Institute. And um, she's going to be with us for the next 30 minutes. So please do quickly send in those questions so that we can try get them through as quickly as possible. Now, Professor Muratla, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you and your listeners. It's wonderful to be here. So thank you very much for being with us. I, I came across a headline. It could have been very late last night or this morning that was, I suppose, celebrating the fact that we have seen a decline of about 54% in um in deaths, COVID-19 deaths in the past three weeks. How should we be seeing these results? Optimistically, should we be a bit cautious? Um, And I ask that because there's been a lot of talk around how much we are testing currently. Should we be optimistic? I think we should because any news about declines in mortality is obviously good news, particularly for for the many people who, who have lost loved ones. Um, The data do align with, I think, what we generally expected in terms of seeing a surge of infections in sort of um, July, August. Uh, And we have um, seen a slowing down of of death and cases. But uh, I think it's always important to remember that this infection hasn't gone away. And what we're seeing probably mirrors what we've seen in other places that have had um, huge epidemics where they had peaks uh, followed by declines in death rates. But then we're seeing uh, increases again in infection rates, particularly in Europe and places like France and, um, and the UK. And even in the US, there's sort of been ongoing infection. So now is the time where we should take stock learn the lessons that we've learned and make sure we can continue to prevent infection as we have been doing um, and and be able to kind of make sure that we don't see any more excessive loss of life. Prof, you know, nobody wants to commit to the fact that maybe temperatures are the reason that we may be seeing a decline, although the data did suggest that we will be seeing a decline. What do we attribute then the decline to? Is it only purely our behaviour? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think quite honestly, people are are not sure. You know, kind of this uh, infection is new to us, mm. and there are a number of reasons that people have speculated. It could be that it's it's seasonal, um, and it has a seasonal trend, and that uh, winter season, like flu, it mm. sort of follows the same pattern. It could be that it impacted those most vulnerable. Um, and people, uh, probably many more people were exposed and didn't have obvious symptoms. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, kind of transmission is more difficult. It could be that we have a much younger population. Mm. So a lot of people, as I said, would have had asymptomatic infection. There are also ideas that maybe because we have higher rates of childhood vaccinations like BCG or mm. measles, that some of those types of things are actually giving protection to communities that have higher levels of vaccination for these other infections. 
Uh, and, you know, so there are a range of explanations. And I think only time is going to tell whether we see a second wave. Um, many people have uh, sort of modeled a lot of their predictions about this pandemic on the flu and um, the Spanish flu of 1918. And that had sort of three successive waves. Mm-hmm. Um, so we must be, continue to be vigilant, but for the time being, you know, kind of it's a relief that we're we're not seeing as many uh, infections and I like that. I like the fact that you, you know, like everybody, it's it's the honesty of we don't know, and I think that's possibly, um, and I say that with great respect, it's possibly actually why we are doing better as a country because there is this we are learning so much because we are more open minded with how we're looking at this um, this disease. You know, nobody has said, well, we know for sure. Can we just hone in a little bit? on what you've just said about the early childhood vaccines. So would, I mean, I'm inclined to say, why don't we write that off? Because a lot of first world countries who already do this are are seeing surges and that's not really seeing to be the reason why they're not, they're not, their numbers are down. So in other words, if that were the case, wouldn't we be seeing more third world countries struggling because they don't have the kind of rollout of these uh, vaccines like first world countries do? Well, I think you make an interesting point. Um, but And if you've been watching the news, which I know you have, you'll see in um, the northern hemisphere, many of the high income countries mm-hmm in fact, don't have as good vaccination coverage rates yeah. as we do sort of in the global south, yes. um, partly because uh, there are strong anti-vaccine sentiments, mm-hmm. uh, particularly some vaccines. Whereas in our part of the world, I think, you know, kind of vaccines are highly valued. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some evidence that's been emerging that suggests that um, some of these vaccines, in people who've had these vaccinations in the last five years, mm-hmm their rate of a uh, of a positive SARS-CoV test or a COVID-19 test mm. has, is half that of people who haven't had a vaccination in the last five years. And that's from big electronic databases. Yes. So it's a, it's a very interesting hypothesis. And there are a number of trials that are evaluating. There's a trial looking at this um, with the BCG vaccination. Yes. And I'm working with colleagues who are interested in, uh, in exploring this idea with the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. Yes. Uh, some of the trials are ongoing, some are still to be started. But what we think happens is that these vaccines can train the immune system ah. to recognize infections uh-huh. and mount a sort of general response to infection, which helps um, mean that they might not get as severe disease. And in the end, you know, many people are going to be infected. Yes. It's only about 20% who end up being hospitalized. And that's what we want to try and reduce, or the, at least the number of severe cases and death. Hmm. I mean, this is a very important point because I think it reiterates a point that the minister made not so long ago to say, while we are all obsessed with COVID-19, let's not, rem- let's not forget to get those children vaccinated and do everything possible to not lag behind with early childhood vaccines. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is what we've learned about COVID-19. It's had enormous social and economic repercussions. Mm. And so in addition to the impact of the disease itself, it's also really undermined the ability of the health system to deliver some of these programs. I mean, we've seen that people are just not bringing their kids to clinics because they're afraid of of being infected. So we've seen drop-offs in vaccination programs. And for Childhood illnesses like measles, it's highly infectious. You need high rates of vaccine coverage uh, in order to prevent outbreaks. Mm. 
And a lot of people, I mean, they've lived most of their lives without seeing a measles case, but you can get very severe cases, and that can cause severe disease in kids. So it's incredibly important that we maintain those programs, but also in South Africa, you know, kind of that we're able to deliver on our HIV programs, our TB programs, our family planning programs, our programs for non-communicable diseases. So, you know, kind of maintaining the health system is incredibly important at this time. We continue our COVID-19 helpline conversation and you can start dialing in on 0891-104-207 or you can send in your voice notes on 0614-104-107. I'm in conversation with Professor Sinead Dillonay-Muretli. Here, there and everywhere. SAFM. 105 FM in Mokopane. Professor Sinead Dillonay Moretre is a director of research at WITS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute. And uh, we are talking all things COVID 19 and the numbers to dial are 0891 104 207. Sig, you're calling from Randburg. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I just heard your guest speaking about the kiddies getting the measles, mumps and rubella stuff. Yes. And yes, doesn't that surely explain why it's the old people that are so prone mm. to the disease and the youngsters aren't at all prone to it? Uh, and possibly also that, that the measles, mumps and rubella uh, immunity, uh, which fights it in the kid, which fights the uh, COVID in the kids, isn't that possible that it fades away a little as they grow older and maybe when they reach the age of, of their grandma, they will also be more prone to the, to the COVID-19. <laughs> Isn't it just those injections? And maybe we should give all the grandmas and measles, mumps and rubella <laughs> injection, eh? Prof, you, your comments on that. So those are great points. Yeah. I think it's absolutely correct that people who are older are more vulnerable to COVID-19 and probably it's in part there that they may be more likely to have comorbidities. But also it's true that the immune system doesn't respond as well um, the older you get. And it's true that people who get vaccines when they're older may not mount as great responses. Um, certainly before we go around offering people these vaccines for COVID-19, we want to do trials to make sure that mm. this is in fact the case. But th- these are what some of these trials are trying to answer is could this be a beneficial intervention? Mm. And the advantage of this approach is that we know so much about these vaccines already. We know how safe they are. We know how they work, at least for other infections. Yeah. And so this is a strategy to evaluate. I suppose the most important thing to to talk about, Prof, is the fact that, remember, often we administer vaccines to healthy people. And that, I think, is is a key to why it's so important to have trials and thorough trials when we do try and and come up with a vaccine or whether it's going to be a cure or whatever. But that the trials are, are, you know, really well, um, they go through vigorous testing because, you know, what are you going to do with a healthy society that suddenly um, gets a vaccine that has got side effects that are more um, problematic than they are of any use? You make a, a brilliant point. Um, we absolutely need trials and uh, trials really help us to quantify the benefits against the risks. And particularly for prevention, it's really important that we have a highly beneficial intervention with very low risks. 
So we do need to evaluate these things before we put them into programs, and that's so that uh, public uh, policymakers know sort of what the return on, on, on their investment is going to be. Mm. But also it guides doctors so they can say to patients, if you get this, it can reduce your chance of X by X percent. And for people to know, I'm likely to get this much benefit if I take this. And so if there are side effects, they can weigh up the risks and benefits mm. in their minds and say, okay, yeah, I think I could, I could do this. And as you say, it's very different for prevention. We don't want healthy people to have lots of side effects. Much more different in treatment where the risk benefits might be quite different. Yeah, we'll touch on that a little bit because we're just going to speak about, I mean, the work that you've been doing around HIV and AIDS. But before that, Prof, can we just take a call from Aisha who's calling us from Uppington? Hi, Aisha. Hello. Uh, Good good afternoon, Pamela, and to the listeners and to the professor. Hello, Aisha. I don't want to take you too far off track, but I... I've just been worried about this. I'm not sure if the prof can help me. Yes. Uh, I heard on the news that there were some elephants that died in Botswana and there was no explanation. And then there were some elephants that, that died in, 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 in Zimbabwe. So I would like to know if there's anybody um, uh, investigating if these elephants died of the coronavirus. And then the other thing that I want to know is exactly from which animal did this coronavirus come? And why I'm concerned about this is because if the elephants died from the coronavirus, then it is transmittable between animals and then we're going to end up eating it. Aisha, I beg you to stay on the line. Please don't leave because I've got an answer for you. But let me just allow Prof to to, to maybe respond before I tell you. So that's a very interesting question. And I think Aisha sort of points to what we have learned about COVID-19. It probably is an infection that jumped from animals to humans. We think that it most likely came from bats. We know it probably will have gone through an intermediate animal. And so similar... um, infections like SARS and MERS. For example, MERS, the intermediate animal, is the camel. And from there, it jumped to humans. And once it's in humans, it's now being transmitted from human to human. But it does point to uh, sort of this important concept of one health, the idea that we need to pay attention Mm. to what goes on in our environment, not just in humans, Mm. but also in animals. Mm. As for whether the elephants are being affected, I wouldn't, I'm not too sure. I haven't heard of it being uh, sort of transmitted to elephants but again i'm not a, a vet <laughs> okay aisha we we i have an answer for you we actually did a whole thing on these particular uh, uh elephants no these elephants were not sick because of a disease these elephants it seems like they were poisoned and it's a very political issue and uh, we they have results they they won't release the results but there have been leaks about what has happened to the elephant so i can safely say to you it seems like the elephants were poisoned rather than a disease that was transferred by another animal to them. Does that make you a little bit more comfortable? Yes, but I'm so concerned because if it came from a bat, so then it can be transferred from animal to animal. So, so my actual question is, are they researching the effects on the animals? Okay, but not for this case, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> so so did, you, did you hear the prof's answer, Aisha? 
the prof to answer. Okay. I, I think she answered it, but let me just refer back to you. Uh, prof, do you want to just maybe yes. clarify the, the answer for her with regards sure. to I mean, the, if, the, if, the connection? If, no, I, it's an important question. Mm. Um, and if, if you recall, when we first heard about the outbreak of COVID-19 in China, it mm. was linked to a market in yes. Wuhan where they sell a lot of um, animal products mm. and also wild animals. Uh, and it was it's thought that it's probably um, bats that may have passed infection to another animal that was then um, in those markets and, and then passed on to people. Mm. So I think the important point is, yes, there are many infections that actually do come from animals into humans. Mm-hmm. The The big problem for us is that this is now an infection that lives in humans. It mm. doesn't require animals to get to us. We can pass it on to each other. And mm. that's sort of why it's taken on the pandemic nature that it has. But it does sort of the important point your your caller makes is that we should be very careful yeah. about what food products we're eating and whether they're appropriately cooked uh, so that we don't inadvertently uh, pick up diseases, which which then could be fatal to humans. Aisha, is your concern more about the environment that we we are in with animals rather than consumption of of, of the of the actual animal itself? Is that where you're going with this question? So, in I other words, if you're living with a cat and it has a disease, that you may be getting a cat disease. I mean, I'm being quite um, simplistic here, but is that where you're no, going with this? No, I'm talking about nature. About wild animals, not not cats. So, okay, so are you, you are you satisfied with that answer from the doctor? Yes, yes, okay. thank you. Thank you very, very much for thank calling Aisha there in Uppington. Well, I mean, Prof, you know, just the last thing here, just to if you can help us, um, because we've run out of time. Chloroquine. Why have we decided to abandon that trial? So, chloroquine has been, uh, I think, a uh, um, a highly emotive and politicized issue. Mm. Um, there are two. There were two ways that chloroquine was thought to potentially have benefit. Um, the one is for treatment, and the other is for prevention. And the reason that chloroquine was thought to be helpful is essentially in a test tube, it has uh, antiviral activity against SARS-CoV-2, but there's a big gap between test tubes and trials in people. Mm. And as uh, trials were launched and people started to look at the data, what they saw is that for treatment, there didn't seem to be any difference between people who got chloroquine and people who got placebo in terms of their recovery. Whereas I think we've seen other trials where um, sort of, for example, dexamethasone or remdesivir, there does appear to be a benefit over placebo in terms of treating COVID-19. And then some people also did trials to see whether chloroquine might prevent uh, um, COVID. And in fact, there are some trials that are ongoing. But so far, the data suggests that the benefits are likely to be very small. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, in prevention, what we want is something that's highly effective and with low risks. And what we were seeing is maybe little effect, but potentially with lots of side effects. Mm -hmm. Um, and for for us, I think um, as a sort of broader society, what we want to do is test interventions that have a high probability mm. of success. Mm. And the data was suggesting that we we weren't going to see much success, and yeah. we don't want to put people through trials 
if they're not going to potentially get benefits. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. That's Professor Sinead Dillanay Moretla, who is a Director of Research at WITS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute. We certainly will be asking her to join us a bit more uh, later in later uh, weeks to come. 1.30, let's go to Utsi Lesaku for the latest in headlines.